Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, as you're turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and the passage that James read for us, we're going to be focusing together on verses 4 to 6 this morning. And if you're new, uh, we are as a church uh, working through the whole of the book of Exodus. And in doing so, that brings us to Exodus chapter 20, this extended section of the commandments of the living God. And we've seen over the last few weeks that God's commandments are good. They are given to us for our good. And they have that enduring uh, relevance and significance and authority. We saw a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at verses 1 and 2, particularly in verse 2, that, that these commandments were not given us as a means of salvation, to be right with God uh, by seeking to do things. For none of us can do that. None of us can be good enough and be perfect enough to earn that salvation. But rather they are given, verse 2, to God's people who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of slavery in Egypt to serve the one true and living God. And we, as God's people, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been rescued in a similar way. And so God speaks these words, verse 1, to his redeemed people. Now we looked last week at the first commandment, There in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And we saw that commandment teaches us to serve God alone and to shun idols always. And so we might say that first commandment is about who we are to worship. It is about who we are to worship. But this week we come to the second commandment. And maybe, as it was read, you had the thought that that sounds very similar to the first commandment. They both seem to be speaking uh, about worship. And so what is the difference? Uh, Perhaps uh, isn't this commandment, the second commandment, just about not serving false gods? Well, the first commandment, as we saw last week, was telling us to serve God alone and shun idols always. So the first commandment includes... Uh, the implication that we should not serve false gods. So this commandment, the second commandment, is not about who we should worship. It is instead about how we should worship. So having focused our attention on the one true and living God in the first commandment, then the Lord says here in the second, this is how you are to worship me as the one true God. So if the first is about who to worship, the second is about how to worship. And so in these first two commandments, we're seeing that God cares that we worship him alone and God cares how we would worship him. As one uh, writer I read this week puts it like this, if you stand 
facing the one true living God, having turned your back upon idols, you still must learn how to kneel properly before this God. One is about who to worship, the first commandment. This commandment is about how to worship. And the heart of this second commandment is about how we should worship. It is telling us that worship of the one true living God is not about our own imagination or ideas. It is good but not sufficient to have sincere devotion. It is not enough just to be devoted. We are to worship God as he has commanded that we should do so. So we're going to look at two points this morning. We're going to see that this commandment has a a narrow meaning. And we'll look at that first. And then we're going to see this commandment has a very broad meaning. And in many of the commandments, it works like this. There's a narrow sense to it, and then there's a broader sense to it. So let's think, first of all, about the narrow aspect of this commandment, which means that we should not make or worship images of the Lord our God. Look down at verse 4. And there we read, You shall not make for yourself an image or idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So this word idol or image is the word the Bible uses for any representation of God. Whether physical or mental, an image in that sense, a representation, a representation of God. So this comment is speaking to us to tell us that we should not have representations of the true God. We should not make images of this God, and we should not do that in a very extensive way. Did you notice the scope of it there at the end of verse 3? Nothing in heaven above, in the earth below, or in uh, the waters below either. So that's the first thing that's being said here. We should not represent God in the form of anything in creation. But then verse 5 adds that we should not bow down and worship anything we have made to represent God. So there's two aspects to this commandment. Do not make an image of the living God and do not bow down, verse 5, to that image. Now that's really important because it means that verse 5 is not a clarification of verse 4 as to what God means. It is an extension of it a little further. Because some people look at this commandment and say, all that's prohibited here is to worship an image of the true God. But actually there are two things God is saying here. Do not make an image of the true and living God, verse 4. And therefore, verse 5, do not worship those images. Now, this commandment is not uh, telling us that we should not, it's not telling us it's wrong to uh, produce artwork about the creation. So it's absolutely fine to paint pictures of beautiful scenes, to paint pictures of, of people and animals, to represent those things. That's not what this commandment is speaking about. We know that because the Lord God does that. Uh, if we think of the temple, there in the Old Covenant, there are carvings of pomegranates, uh, things from creation. So it's not speaking of that. But very specifically, this commandment is telling us that we should not be forming physical or mental images of the true God, verse 4. And verse 5, we should not be worshipping 
those images. So why are images of the one true God such a problem? Well, there are three reasons why we might say they're a problem. First of all, images of the one true God are a problem because they undermine the freedom of God. In the ancient world, people were accustomed to making images of their gods. Now, I think we can misunderstand what they were doing in that. I think we think that they thought their gods were just those physical images, those idols they created with their hands. And they didn't think that. They knew that, that, or they believed, that the gods they were serving were bigger than their physical idols. But they believed their physical idols were in some way connected to their gods. So in creating an image of the false gods they were serving, as we would say, that allowed them to control the freedom. And in that way, we can see why images of the one true and living God are so problematic. Because when you make an image of the one true and living God, you can control that God. You can get that image out when you want to, and you can put it away when you don't. When you make an image of the one true and living God, you can channel that God. You can focus the meeting of your God around that physical image. One way of illustrating what people were doing when they were creating images of of gods is a bit like, you know, when you have those massive electricity transformers, which take the high voltage lethal power and transform it to a safer working voltage. Well, people used images like that in the ancient world. They made their powerful gods safer to work with. And then the third aspect of undermining freedom is that people could manipulate their gods through their images. So there's a a story told of a a Chinese village that during the the famine in 1878, where almost 70 million people died in China, the villagers got their, their, their false idols and gods out And they held feasts to them to try and persuade their gods to to help them. They held theater performances for them. They even brought their gods into the blistering sun so that they would experience the power of the sun on their own paintwork. So you can manipulate gods through idols. And so, the God of the Bible tells us, do not make an image of me because that will undermine my freedom. The God of the Bible cannot be controlled through an image or an idol. He cannot be channeled to one place. He cannot be manipulated like an idol. Why? Well, verse 1. He is the Lord your God. Images undermine the freedom of God. But also, images cannot capture the majesty of God. All images, all visual representations of God, whether made with our hands or held in our minds, are going to be an incomplete understanding of God because they cannot capture the fullness of the glory of God. The spirituality of God means that any attempt to represent God in an image will be incomplete. Now, in the Bible, God does compare himself to things at times to bring out aspects of his character. And so we read sometimes in the scriptures that that God is like something, but we must be clear that he is never fully captured by anything. 
that we might form with our hands or think of as an image in our minds. And so, if we think of another passage, James read for us uh, in Isaiah earlier, and if a passage that's well known in Isaiah 40, a chapter of scripture that's uh, loved and treasured by many, we read these words in Isaiah 40. With whom then, Isaiah 40 verse 18, with whom then will you compare God's? To what image will you liken him? Well, as for an idol, a metal worker casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashioned silver and chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was formed? This is the true God. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out a canopy, the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them like a tent to live in. This is the greatness of God. His majesty cannot be captured by anything visual. And it's significant that God at Sinai was teaching Israel this very same lesson. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, In verse 15 to 18, the Lord is really clear for the reason he did not appear physically to the people there. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. That's Sinai. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. And the passage continues. So what's being said there? What's being said there is that when God, appeared, when God um, met with his people at Sinai, he did not appear in a physical form. So he cannot be put into a physical form now. But how did God make himself known? Well, what do we hear in verse 15? You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. So our God has not made himself known with a physical form, but he has made himself known with words. And that means, therefore, that God's people now are a hearing people, not a seeing people. You cannot capture the majesty of God through any image. And then thirdly, images are problematic because they lead us to idol worship. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, we read in verse 5 that the reason God gives for why they should not do this is because the Lord is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people's worship. So he's saying, don't make an image to represent me because I am jealous. Now, what does that mean? Well, it implies that, that to represent God as an image leads us to worship the image as an idol and therefore provokes the Lord to jealousy. God is saying, I know your heart perfectly. And when you picture me, you will begin to worship that image instead of me. God is warning us that in breaking this second commandment, we will in fact break the first commandment. So creating an image of God leads us to idol worship. Three reasons why our images are problematic. But perhaps as you're hearing the passage read and you heard verses five and six, 
you might have uh, wondered what was being communicated there. Verse, uh, second half of verse 5 and verse 6, where the Lord God says, For the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, punishing the sin of the parents to the third and fourth, sorry, punishing the sin of the, sorry, the ch- punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what does that verse mean? Well, it cannot mean that God will punish children for the specific sins of their parents. In Ezekiel 18, verse 17, the Lord says, a son will not die for his father's sin. But rather, what's being communicated there in verse 5 and 6 is that the sins of parents can have effects beyond their lifetimes. So God is particularly saying that the way that we worship him is important because our actions and patterns in worshiping God have generational effects to third and fourth generations And good patterns of loving God and obeying God, seen in parents, echo down. And notice how far they echo to the thousand generations. So the blessing that comes from following following godly parents exceeds the punishment that can come in following the sins of our parents. What is God saying here? God is saying that our sins in worship have implications beyond our lifetime. Not in a hard and fast sense, but in a true sense. Now, we know that's the case in Scripture because just think of the kings of Israel and of how their idol worship was passed down from one generation to the next. Andy was earlier reminding us of how careful we should be as parents about passing down our idols to our children. And it's the same principle. Because how we relate to God, particularly in worship, is both taught and caught. Worship patterns form us. They form us, they form our children, and they form our children's children far more than we realize. And so, in our decisions about how we worship God, we need to be mindful for what that means for us and for the generations to come. Now, we'll come to think about further applications shortly, but now we've talked about the narrow meaning, that is that we should not make an image of the true and living God, either physically or in our minds. Let's think about the broader meaning of this commandment. And here we come to our second point. And in light of the heat, I hope you will just excuse me having a pause there. The second aspect of this commandment is that we should worship God as he has commanded us. We should worship God as he has commanded us. We noted a couple of weeks ago that when God speaks negatively that we should not do something in the commandments, that also implies the positive to us as well. So in God saying no to using images to represent him, this implies that we should worship him only as he tells us to worship. Now, that's very important because it means it is not for us to speculate or invent how we should worship, but rather we are to follow God's instructions for how we should worship. Now, we see that principle worked out in a number of passages in Scripture. I'm just going to highlight 
two or three now. Staying in the Old Testament and thinking of the worship in the temple, if you turn, if you have a Bible to Leviticus chapter 10, we have an event uh, where two of the sons of Aaron who are priests die because of something they do in temple worship. Look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This passage is a solemn reminder of the significance of worship, and the key thing for us to note is that in verse 1, it is not just that what the fire that they offer in worship is contrary to God's command, which is actually how the NIV renders it, but I don't think it's being most helpful in how it's rendering the Hebrew here. But rather, the ESV is more helpful to tell us that the problem was that they had offered something not as God had commanded. So judgment comes upon these two priests, not because they offer something contrary to God's explicit command, but rather because they offer something God has not commanded they should do. We should only offer our worship as God commands us to worship. And then as we jump on to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32, in a passage, a chapter that's all about the significance of worship, the Lord says this about how his people should worship. Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. And so, uh, we would also jump on to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament principle, it's something that's taught in the New Testament as well. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, Paul is telling the Colossians to turn from all kinds of ideas and principles that come from the world and people's ideas. And so he says, Colossians 2 and verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things which are all destined to perish with use, are based on mere human commands and teachings. Verse 23, Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. And that's a key word there, self-imposed worship. Another way to render that phrase is self-made religion. So God, in Colossians 2.23, is telling his people not to take the ideas of the world or even their own ideas and bring them into worship so that they offer self-made religion. That's bringing ideas, our own ideas, in how we worship God. So it's not enough to say that as long as God doesn't prohibit that we would do this in worship, it's acceptable. We need to have a commandment of God that we should do this, that we might worship in this way. And so our Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession of Faith, says this about public worship. 
The only acceptable way of worshipping the true God is appointed by himself in accordance with his own will. Consequently, he may not be worshipped in ways of mere human contrivance or proceeding from Satan's suggestions. Visible symbols of God and all other forms of worship not prescribed by the Holy Scripture are expressly forbidden. So now that the temple worship system is abolished and we live under the new covenant, we are to follow new covenant commands for worship. And the wonderful thing is that God has commanded us to do all kinds of things in our worship services. We're not short of things to do. So here are some of the things that the scripture calls us to do as we come together to worship God together. We are to read scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us to do that. We are to pray together. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 tells us to do that. We are to sing praise to God together. Colossians 3 verse 16 commands us to do that. We are to hear the preaching of the word of God together in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. That's referred to. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Acts 2.42 again. And we are to, uh, to observe and engage in baptism together. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Those are things that God commands us to do, and we are to do those things which God has commanded in worship. Now, as we say all that, we shouldn't forget that there is freedom in how we do some of those things. So there is freedom as to which instruments we use to help us to sing. There is freedom as to which tunes we choose to sing together. There is freedom for how much scripture we might read in a service. There is freedom for the shape and the order of service in that sense. And there is, please remind me uh, of this, freedom as the length of the sermon. So scripture gives us freedom, but it also gives us clear commands for what we should do. There are commandments that we are to apply both with that freedom, but also in biblical principle and wisdom in how we do those things as well. That freedom is guided by biblical principle and wisdom. But here's what's really important, friends. Scripture therefore tells us that if it's not commanded that we should do it, it should not be, therefore, a part of our worship service. So, interpretive dance, or blessing a new pet, or flag-waving, or many other things, are not part of new covenant worship. Now, most of our difficulties arise in this area because we've got the wrong perspective. The perspective we have is that we have turned worship into something that's about us rather than God. We have turned public worship into something that is man-centered, that's about us as people, rather than bringing glory and praise to God. And when we do that, that means that suddenly we have everyone else's preferences and opinions to consider. In doing so, in making worship about us, we're asking the wrong question. But the question is not, what do I need? The question is not, what helps me? But rather, what does God tell us to do together? And in just as we have thought about all the other commandments thus far, there is great freedom that comes from following God's commandments in this way. 
Because as we seek to worship according to only what God has commanded us, that gives us freedom and confidence in our worship. We are freed by focusing on God's commandments from our own uncertain and changing preferences to what should be in the service or the varied views of others as well. We are freed from being asked to do things that we judge unwise or unhelpful. And instead, we can come and worship God knowing that as we offer praise through our prayers and our singing, and as we listen to the word preached and read, we are bringing that through our Saviour Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. And as we do that, we are offering acceptable worship. It's not perfect, but in Christ and through the Spirit, God receives it as acceptable worship. And that's a glorious thing, isn't it? That we don't need to speculate as to how we might worship God because God has told us how we can do that. And that's freeing. God's commandments bring freedom. And previous generations really felt the significance of this, friends. I was reminded by a friend this week who knows a lot about church history that that many of the pilgrim fathers who left on the Mayflower to go to America did so in part for this very principle that they could not submit to being asked to worship God in ways that God had not commanded. And so they left these shores, they went to America because they said, we cannot submit to man-made rules for worship rather than the commandments of the living God. And you think of the cost they faced. You think of the dangers they went through, all because they wanted worship to be God-centered. It's a challenge to remember that, friends. So we've seen the, the narrow understanding of this commandment, that it teaches us that we are not to make an image physically or in our minds of the one true and living God. We've seen the broad meaning of this commandment, that it means that we should worship God only as he is commanded. And now as we close, let us think about a few areas of application. So first of all, images of God both in worship and in life in general. So in applying this commandment, we should not make or use icons or statues or visual images of any of the persons of the Trinity. Now, it's interesting, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't see this second commandment as a separate commandment, and they build it into the first commandment and argue that it's just an extension of not, of worshiping, not worshiping false gods. And so they say that as long as you are worshiping the one true God through an image, then it's okay. But what we've seen as we've looked carefully at Exodus 20 is verse 4 is specific in saying that is not okay. It's both the making of an image and the worshiping of God through that image. So we should be very careful about physical images and mental images of the living God. So as we think of the question that perhaps is going through all our minds, well, what about pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, personally, I struggle to see how that isn't problematic under the second commandment. We know very little about the physical appearance of the Lord Jesus from the Gospels. 
think it's significant the Lord has told us very little about what Jesus looked like. And as we think about physical appearances of, physical appearance of Jesus, we miss seeing the fullness of who Christ is in all of his character. We inevitably emphasize one aspect to the detriment of the others in that sense. And the great danger is that we think of him as we have seen him in a picture and begin to idolize that image rather than Christ in all his fullness as we find him in the scriptures. Now, I know that's challenging to avoid. And it's also challenging because the scriptures encourage us to consider Christ's humanity and hence his sympathy and understanding of us. The scriptures want us to know that Christ was like us. He was truly human. He was fully human. And he was and he is. But we don't need an image to know that. God's word tells us that and shows us that. I was struck speaking to an older Christian this week who was saying that 30 years ago, almost all Christians would not have used images of Christ But the change has been rapid. And his question was, have we forgotten something important in this second commandment? So images of God, both in worship and in life in general. But then also having our own ideas about God and imposing them on the Lord are also covered by this commandment. Sometimes people say, I like to think of God as something without considering how God has made himself known in the scriptures. So they emphasize something that they want to emphasize about God without seeing the fullness of who God is. And that can be a kind of image making because we are shaping God into what we want him to be like instead of as we find him in his word. It can lead to us emphasizing one attribute of God without balance of all the attributes of God. So people say that I like to think of God just as a loving friend, but then forget that he is also our judge. Or they say I like to think of God as just kind and gentle without someone, without my father who brings correction that I need. And as we do this, we inevitably choose things that we like and are drawn to about God and ignore things that we don't. So instead of having our own ideas of God, let us seek to know God in all the aspects of his character that he has revealed in his word. Friends, never be satisfied with a partial view of God. Seek to know God as fully as he can be known now, looking forward to that great day when we will know him face to face in the fullest way that any creature can know God. And as we think about this longing that we have to know the Lord more fully and to see the Lord face to face, we're reminded in the scriptures that there is a day coming when we will see God. And we long for that day, don't we? We long for that day when we will see him with our eyes. But to do that here and now is to bring forward what God has promised will be something in the future. And here and now, God calls us to live by faith, focusing not on what we see, but what is unseen, and to wait for that future sight of glory. 
Some wonderful promise in the scriptures about seeing God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the pure in heart will see God. When? In the future, in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 8, we're reminded that we do not see Christ now, but 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we're reminded that when Christ appears, we will see him as he is. So that should be our longing, friends. That should be our focus, not to have an image now, but to look forward to that day when we will see God. And so here and now, what do we do? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, we live by faith and not by sight. And as we meet together as God's people each Sunday in his presence, it's a preview. It's a preview of that great day because we see him now by faith as we come to his word. And as we worship together as his people, according to his commandments, we are preparing, we are rehearsing for the great day when we will see him face to face. And so let us live today by faith, looking forward to the day when he will come in glory, when we will fall down with the angels. And when we get there, what will we do? Well, we won't say, Lord, let me worship you in this new way that I've come to. We won't say that, will we? We'll say, Lord, I want to join with all the angels and we'll ask those around us, give us a hymn sheet so we can sing together the new song of the Lamb. That's our hope, friends. That's our confidence.